The Oregonian does report that New Jersey State Police were investigating possible links between Bundy and the unsolved slayings of two co-eds beaten and stabbed on Memorial Day weekend in 1969. The Memorial Day stabbing deaths of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry say they've been in almost constant communication with Michigan State Police. Those contacts have been intensified with the arrest of 22-year-old John Norman Collins. Thomas R. Walden of Cairo, Georgia, is wanted for questioning in the case, primarily because he happens to have a criminal record and was in the resort area when Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were brutally knifed to death. Although they officially remain unsolved, serial killer Ted Bundy has long been suspected in the murders of two co-eds, the Jersey Shore. They had a bed and breakfast in Ocean City, New Jersey. The two were later found strangled and stabbed near the Summers Point Ocean City exit on the Garden State Parkway. Brennan and his staff remain firm in the belief that the man who wore this skin diver type wristwatch is the actual perpetrator of the brutal killings. Mr. Davis and I are offering a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murderer or murderers of our daughters. The ground floor of the Absecon, New Jersey State Police Barracks, formerly a road station with bunk beds where drowsy troopers could nap between shifts and where Susan Davis's car was towed from Blazer's garage after being removed from the Garden State Parkway, was hurriedly dismantled to accommodate its new purpose as the nerve center of the Perry Davis murder investigation. Bunk beds were taken apart and spare rooms partitioned into offices equipped with filing cabinets, wall charts, and new phone lines installed solely for the expanding investigation. A hotline number was distributed to newspapers, along with an urgent message from Lieutenant Brennan, pleading with the public to reach out to the state police and provide them with what he characterized as any scrap of information to help solve the Memorial Day slayings. By early Tuesday, June 3rd, teams of detectives had begun fanning out within the Ocean City and Summers Point, New Jersey areas, focusing on tracking down the owner of the dive watch that had been found at the crime scene. They interviewed jewelry store owners and surf shop employees to see if they'd recently sold any Belfort Sea Diver watches. The state police learned from Francis Sybin, one of the co-owners of the 9th Street boarding house where Susan and Elizabeth had stayed, that she had seen two young hippies shouting out to Susan as she and Elizabeth were standing on the porch talking to Mr. and Mrs. Sybin as they prepared to leave for home. Detectives interviewed both men, however, and found that their stories matched. They provided alibis for the time of the murders and were never under suspicion. Investigators logically returned to the Summers Point traffic circle in search of witnesses and began interviewing witnesses and other staff from the diner. I dug into newspaper databases from that year for more names of persons who might have worked there back in the late 1960s. Luckily, after speaking with several locals, I was able to track down William McGill, who was managing the night shift crew wait staff and helping place orders early morning May 30, 1969. McGill's family had owned the diner since 1950, back when it was a 65-seat dining car. In 1982, he sold the diner before embarking on a second career as an insurance salesman with MetLife. McGill offered an explanation as to why so few people were able to accurately recall seeing Susan and Elizabeth on Memorial Day. At that particular time of the day, the diner was extremely busy, he told me. With the bars letting out in the early morning hours, it was practically a situation where we had a standing line to get in 24 hours a day. It was gangbusters. Eight waitresses, three busboys, and several cooks were working at the diner the day Susan and Elizabeth were murdered. Eleanor Ryan, who was hostessing before dawn on the morning of the slayings, told a newspaper reporter that she saw, quote, a mass of long-haired boys and girls, unquote, 
but nobody matching the description of Susan and Elizabeth. I cross-checked the names of each of the waitresses mentioned in the newspapers at the time. One woman was afflicted with dementia. Another waitress, Betty Filling, whom I'd interviewed for my book, was suddenly apprehensive when I attempted to revisit the topic for this podcast, practically hanging up on me when I reintroduced myself. The rest of the ladies had passed away, which came as no surprise, as diner waitressing is a hard life and takes its toll. Betty Filling's friend and co-worker, Fran Bruin, however, a former staff waitress who still lives in the Summers Point area and was working at the diner on Memorial Day weekend, 1969, was happy to talk with me. In 1969, nearly all of the newspaper reporters who had interviewed the diner staff limited the scope of their questions to whether they'd seen Susan and Elizabeth on Memorial Day morning. None reported that the girls had actually first visited the diner a few days earlier, on Tuesday morning, May 27th, the day they had arrived in Ocean City to begin their three-day stay. Here is Fran Bruin, remembering the day she met Susan and Elizabeth when they first stopped into the Summers Point Diner on Tuesday, before checking into their boarding house. In 69, when this happened, we, Betty Filling and I, were working, and the two girls came in, and we had just opened the dining room, <clears throat> as opposed to the counter where the uh, coffee and everything is. So anyway, they sat, and they were going to have breakfast, and we got talking to them because it was very, before anybody came in, it was after the rush, and it was before lunch. So they were talking to them, nice girls, and they said that uh, they were going to go to the beach. So we're laughing and talking, and Betty said, gee, if we were off, we'd go with you, you know, that kind of thing. It was minimal. They were just young and laughing and having a good time and talking about going to the beach, you know, something like that. So. I also asked Fran if the New Jersey State Police had questioned her and what she remembered about their sweeping homicide investigation, how the murders impacted Summers Point, Ocean City, and the surrounding community in the years that followed? Uh, once. Once they did, yes. Uh, just briefly, you know. And, of course, you know how they set up for a while there. Of course, there's no circle there now, per se, but at that time there was a circle there. And they would set up every holiday for quite a few years, hoping to get somebody that may have been there, you know, on vacation at the time and were coming back like a lot of people do every year, hoping to see some, but nothing ever really came of it, you know. But it was terrible. I did talk to someone, and I don't remember. I mean, I don't even know if I knew the man's name. The claim that he had seen them leave the diner, go out in the lot to get their car, and a young man came up and was talking to them. And that's the last he saw of them. So who knows, you know. But it was terrible. I did talk to someone and I don't remember. I mean, I don't even know if I knew the man's name. It's hard to say what happened after that. It was a very tragic thing. On Tuesday, June 3, 1969, the Philadelphia Bulletin published an account of what appeared to be the first major break in the double homicide. According to reporters Albert Gaudiosi and Robert Shoemaker, a local man named Albert Hickey Jr. 
a part-time security officer affiliated with the Summers Point Police Department, had provided state police with a substantial eyewitness account. Soon, Hickey's recollection of what he claimed to have seen in the early morning hours of May 30, 1969, was splashed across the headlines of all the local newspapers. Finally, it seemed, the police had a lead, and everybody wanted to hear what Al Hickey had to say. I tracked down Albert Hickey several years ago and found him still living in the Egg Harbor City, New Jersey area, where he owned a used furniture store located a short drive from the old Absecon State Police Barracks. Hickey was in his early 70s when I reached him on the phone. It took some persuading to convince him to talk to me, even for a brief few moments. Like others before him, it seemed as though he simply had no interest in reliving the grim subject of the 1969 murders, and certainly didn't want to discuss his involvement in the case. Yet a part of me also sensed from the lull that followed our awkward introduction and his brief remarks that Albert definitely had something he wanted to share with me, perhaps get off his mind. That case, he said, was a screwed up mess. There's so much there. Well, let's put it this way. Shit, there's too much to say about it over the phone. I offered to buy him lunch so we could talk in person, but he declined. Reluctantly, he agreed to meet with me, and we scheduled a time to meet at his store that afternoon. Hickey and his wife Joanna owned and operated the Ideal Furniture Store, located at 203 Whitehorse Pike in downtown Egg Harbor City, in the middle of South Jersey blueberry country. When I introduced myself to Al Hickey, his demeanor had changed. He was a robust, stocky, energetic salesman with a ready smile, a calloused grip, and thickly boned forearms sprinkled with sawdust. Albert invited me to sit at an unvarnished dining table, a spot that appeared to double as a workspace where he could review a sales agreement or savor a coastal breeze before tackling his paperwork at the end of a long day. Joanna kept her distance, however, lingering among a row of nearby credenzas. After we sat down and I reiterated the purpose of my visit, I learned from Al Hickey that in addition to his duties as a security officer at the Summers Point Diner, for 37 years he'd worked as a freelance photographer and was often dispatched by newspapers to cover local crime scenes, including suicides and murders. It was by coincidence that on Monday, June 2nd, the day that the bodies of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry were discovered, Hickey was at Shore Memorial Hospital in Summers Point on behalf of the Associated Press preparing to photograph the arrival of Wesley Davis and Ray Perry as they were about to identify their daughters, when he learned that the fathers had been whisked off by police to the Absecon barracks. After hurrying to the barracks with his camera, Hickey casually asked a reporter standing next to him what make of car Susan and Elizabeth had been driving. When he learned that a convertible had been found near milepost 31.9, he suddenly became a potential witness and was hustled into the barracks to give a statement. His recollection of that Memorial Day morning remained with him for 40 years. He stood resolutely by the account he had given to police and reporters. And though his memory was generally consistent with the newspaper accounts, after reviewing my notes from our interview, I noticed a few differences. Hickey remembered that he'd worked at the Summers Point Diner Friday morning, May 30, 1969, until approximately 4.15 a.m. and remained on the premises for a cup of coffee once his shift ended. At around 4.30 a.m., he was standing outside the diner, chatting with fellow security guard John Bates on the landing at the top of the stairs leading to the glass doors. Facing the Summers Point traffic circle, Hickey glimpsed two pretty young women in a convertible entering the circle from the direction of Ocean City. Their car top was up. I'm trained to observe anything in my area, Hickey told a reporter at the time. 
That's one reason I look that way. According to most newspaper accounts, when the car was directly opposite him, across the circle, in front of what was then the Jolly Roger Cocktail Lounge, about 50 yards away, the young women in the convertible stopped and picked up what appeared to be a clean-cut hitchhiker wearing a yellow shirt and dark slacks. Hickey remembered that the hitchhiker was about 5 feet 7 to 5 feet 9 inches tall and was carrying what the papers described as a small bag. He looked fairly clean, not like a beatnik or hippie, that's for sure, he told a reporter. Neat, but shaggy. He admits that he didn't notice the young man standing there at the circle, waiting to be picked up. The girl stopped and the hitchhiker ran up to the side of the car, Hickey said. The girl passenger said something to him and then opened the door and let him in the back. Hickey told a reporter that the car, which had Pennsylvania tags, was either blue or black and sped off down MacArthur Boulevard in the direction of the parkway. When he was asked by state police to positively identify the convertible stored at the barracks garage, Hickey said that although it looked similar to the car he had seen at the Circle, he couldn't be certain. When I showed Al Hickey a black-and-white press glossy of the convertible as it was parked outside the barracks garage, likely taken the same night in 1969 when police detectives had also asked Hickey to identify the car, he told me that this was the same car he'd seen at the traffic circle 40 years earlier. However, he now remembered it as being green. And while the newspapers reported that Hickey had seen a man in a yellow shirt hop into the back of a convertible driven by two young women who'd stopped to give him a lift, he told me that the man who got into the car was wearing a white shirt with rolled sleeves, not yellow, and was carrying a black flight bag of the sort that airlines, such as TWA, used to hand out to passengers. He also told me that he saw the man standing with his thumb held out, whereas the newspapers had reported that Hickey hadn't seen the hitchhiker until he approached the car and threw his bag inside. I gather that Hickey didn't have a great relationship with the Summers Point Police Department, especially with then-police chief Charles Gray. Hickey was designated as a, quote, special officer, unquote. These were part-time police officers who, if qualified, were able to carry a gun on the job, but were more or less employed seasonally to handle the large summer crowds that gathered at the Circle and the Bay Drive nightclubs nearby. The chief of police told me to go out there and talk to them, Hickey told me, recalling the massive reporters that had converged at the diner, seeking to interview and photograph the security guard who might have cracked the co-ed murders. Then I went out and talked to him, Hickey said and the chief gave me a bunch of shit about trying to steal publicity. At around this point in our conversation, Albert's wife, Joanna, a petite, thin, brown-haired woman nervously smoking cigarettes, who had been apparently eavesdropping on our conversation from the showroom floor, suddenly marched over and took a seat beside her husband, as if itching to say something on the matter. The state police, they made up their mind how it was going to go down, she said. At the time, I was working at the casino, and one of the state police worked there. A lot of threats were made. They even made a threat to investigate Al, like he did it. As with her husband, I sensed from Joanna that she had something more that she needed to get off her chest. I was concerned, however, that she might shut down on me if I asked her to expand upon her remarks, so I was careful not to interrupt her. The first casinos in New Jersey didn't open until 1978, and the Garden State Parkway murders had long since gone cold by that time. Numerous retired state police troopers and detectives in the Shore area migrated to security jobs at the casinos after retirement. So this part of what she was saying certainly made sense. But why were the New Jersey State Police interested in speaking with Joanna Hickey about her husband so long after the murders? 
Joanna didn't elaborate upon her remarks, but after speaking with the Hickeys that afternoon, I sensed that the pair felt that authorities hadn't completely believed Albert's account of what he saw at the traffic circle on the morning of Susan and Elizabeth's murder. Perhaps because he was a part-time cop or security guard, he didn't earn the respect of full-time officers. While some of the retired detectives from the state police and Summers Point Police Departments were skeptical of Al Hickey's account, the description of what he saw on Memorial Day morning would, in a few short days, lead to a major break in the investigation. After they questioned Hickey, state police detectives retraced Susan and Elizabeth's steps. They returned across the bridge into Ocean City and back to the Sybins' 9th Street boarding house, interviewing other guests who'd stayed there between May 27th and May 30th, 1969. Walter Sybin told police that Susan and Elizabeth had paid cash, staying in a second-floor room with two single beds, two windows, one dresser, and a chair. Most of the day they were at the beach, Sybin told a reporter. Although they went out at night, they returned to the house every morning by two, as that's when Sybin locked the front doors. In 2010, I interviewed one of the boarders who'd signed his name into the Sybin's guest registry the week leading up to Memorial Day, 1969. A recovering alcoholic, he told me that his drinking and repeated blackouts had caused him significant memory loss from the 1960s and 1970s and was sorry he couldn't remember the girls, news of the murders, or being interviewed by the state police. I did manage to speak with boarder R. Lee Swigert, who in 1969 was an undergraduate at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. What he told me mirrored the account he provided a Philadelphia Inquirer reporter in 1969. Swigert told me that on Wednesday evening, May 28th, the day after Susan and Elizabeth arrived in Ocean City, he and two other boarders drove Susan and Elizabeth across the bay to Summers Point, where they knew of a party. Instead of going to the party, they pulled over to the side of the road in Summers Point, shared two six-packs, and smoked cigarettes. They didn't get drunk, Swigert said, and the group returned to the boarding house together later that evening. Swigert checked out of the boarding house on Thursday afternoon, May 29th. It would be the last time he saw the girls. He volunteered to take a lie detector test, but wasn't given one. Although he didn't spend much time with Susan, he told a reporter that he didn't see her as the sort of person to offer a stranger a lift. Sue wouldn't have picked up a hitchhiker unless she knew him, he said. Publicly, Lieutenant Brennan agreed with Swigert, telling Atlantic City press reporter John Katz, From what I know about them, it doesn't appear they would pick up someone they didn't know. But on Wednesday, June 4th, three young men from Susan's hometown of Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, told reporters that she had offered them a ride to a hamburger drive-in 18 months earlier. One of the young men, who asked not to be identified, said, We were hitchhiking. And Sue stopped and said, Where are you going? We told her McDonald's. The young men accepted the ride offer. She was real easy to carry on a conversation with, one of the young men said of the encounter and that he later recognized Susan from her picture in the local newspapers. Did Susan Davis, a delightful young woman by all accounts, have the misfortune of offering a ride to a deranged hitchhiker at the Summers Point Circle? Would they have even picked up a hitchhiker? Had the person who murdered them followed them out of the diner, or was he waiting for them along the highway, tricking them to pull over? I always suspected that in order to arrive at the answer of who killed Susan and Elizabeth, Rather than ascribe their murders to fate and circumstance, I would need to take a step back and learn more about these girls and better understand their personalities. Was there anything in their pasts which might provide clues as to why they were killed? 
Who were Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry? Susan Marguerite Davis was born on March 14, 1950. She was raised in the affluent Beverly Park neighborhood in the town of Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, two miles outside of the state capital of Harrisburg. She was educated at Harrisburg Academy, the K-12 private school that she'd attended since grade school. Paula Corson, a retired school teacher from Millville, New Jersey, spent the better part of her formative years in Camp Hill after her parents moved there from North Jersey when she was in the ninth grade. She relived for me her thoughts on spending her high school years with Sue and whether, in fact, Sue had picked up a hitchhiker and what impact the murders have had on her all these years later. I met Susan first day of school. Um, I'm going back now, 67, 66, 65, in 1964. I came very good friends with her. She befriended me right away. I mean, I mean, I was the outsider. Again, most of these students have gone there since kindergarten. And um, Susan immediately, you know, took me under her wing, showed me, explained things. Now, it's not a very big school, what have you, but, um, you know, helped me like that, invited me to her house. I mean, we didn't drive then, so we did drive, did drive at 16 in Pennsylvania, but um, we weren't that old yet. And, um, you know, I had many sleepovers at her house, and we had, you know, class parties and things like that. So um, for three years, I knew her very well. Then, of course, she went to Illinois, and I went to New York, and we would have a little bit of contact during Christmas um, vacation. But um, it's like everything else. It's not quite the same when you're not in high school. Very bubbly. She she talked. I mean, she gabbed all the time. And... um, you know, she um, was very honest. She was very gracious with, you know, being nice to people. And um, as I said, you know, inviting inviting us over, what have you. And um, we always liked going to her house because we were, like, left alone in the basements, per se. And um, she was a very nice girl, very sweet girl. I don't think she had an enemy in the world. She was she was happy-go-lucky. Um, again, I remember being asked that question. I remember answering it the way I did, that she would know not to, but that if you had somebody else in the car, I think, you know, you would think, yeah, why not? I, I, I really do. Um, I can't see her picking up somebody alone. I really can't. So I think if she picked up anybody, it was because she had somebody with her that, Again, I, I, mean, I remember telling that to either Mr. Davis or the policeman. That, but you asked me what impact it had on me. My first always impact, and maybe I got this because from my mother, was if you had been home, you might have been with them. But my mother, my mother just freaked out thinking if Sue had, if I had been home, if I had come home when I should have come home from college, which was a week and a half before that, you know. And Sue said, "Hey, I'm going down to Ocean City," and I got. You know, my girlfriend from, or my little sister from college to show her the ocean, um, you know, and probably my parents would have let me go on, but I don't know about that either. But that's always rang in my bell. Memorial Day still doesn't come up that I don't think about it. Caitlin Legrand, who carpooled to school with Susan each day during their senior year together at Harrisburg Academy, said of Susan, she didn't have a malicious bone in her body. I can't tell you how nice she was. Like Paula Corson, 
Legron recalls when the Davises hosted sleepovers for Sue's friends in their downstairs den. Susan drove for her father's bottling company during summer vacations and was a member of her church's Methodist Youth Fellowship chapter. An aspiring poet, at the suggestion of her brother's fiance, in the fall of 1967 she enrolled at Monticello Junior College in Illinois, an all-girls school near St. Louis. Much as she had while at Harrisburg Academy, Sue was a very sociable young woman who immersed herself in several student activities. In 2011, I received a trove of letters written by Susan on Monticello College stationery from one of her old boyfriends who'd attended college in another part of the country and had somehow learned of my research into his friend's murder. The two enjoyed a long-distance relationship that began in the fall of 1967, dating on and off during the summers between Susan's first and second years at Monticello, with Sue penning lengthy handwritten letters providing an unfiltered lens into a day in the life for this forlorn teenage college freshman at an all-girls school crushing on a boy so far away. The letters, I think, provide valuable insight into Sue's trusting nature and innocence. At the writer's request, I've changed his name. Sue's voice is being portrayed by Lindsay Wilson. Dear Billy, I'm really in a fix for I don't really know how to start this letter. One thing I know I must do is thank you from the bottom of my heart for the lovely necklace you sent me. There's a problem now. Everyone who sees it says it's a school lavalier. Engaged to be engaged to be engaged. But would like to know from you, and you alone, if that's what it is. I'm getting really confused about it, especially from what everyone here says. Please, explain. The girls have a habit of throwing girls who are lavaliered, pinned, or engaged into the showers. They've agreed to wait for your reply before I get honored. That is, of course, if I am lavaliered. You know, I wouldn't really mind a shower like that for that reason at all, especially if it was over you. I know I'm sounding kind of mushy. It's just a necklace between friends I don't mind, because I know we haven't seen each other for such a long time. Anywho, it's a really nice present, and I was pleased that you remembered me at Christmas. Right now, I'm scourging around for a larger box to put your late Christmas present in, so forgive the tardiness. I'll send it to your school address so you'll have something in your mailbox when you get back. I'm sorry it was a late gift, but I ran out of funds before I got home. Otherwise, you would have gotten it sooner. I'd like to thank you for your New Year's Christmas surprise. In clear language, your telephone call. It was really sweet of you to go to that much trouble for a little old me. I was kind of speechless there and couldn't tell you all I wanted to at the time. Just talking to you made me wish it was summer. Oops, well I've done it. At the bottom of the page, a large blot of perfume. I tipped it over accidentally. I haven't finished getting resettled, so all my junk is just where it shouldn't be. Well, my first perfumed letter to you. Enjoy it. I've got to get to work now, so I shall end. Thanks again for your present and your phone call and your letter. I miss you. Love, Sue. Susan's friend Elizabeth Potter Perry was born on January 10, 1950. She was the younger of two daughters born to Margaret Eggers Perry and Raymond Potter Perry. The family was originally from St. Louis, but moved to Minnesota when Elizabeth, known as Ibby to her close friends and family, was eight years old. She was raised in the wealthy Cottagewood neighborhood of Deephaven on the shores of Lake Minnetonka, where in the summertime, families sailed and played tennis on private courts tucked behind hedgerows and through backyard ice skating parties in the winter. The Perrys lived in a five-bedroom colonial on Lakeview Avenue and belonged to the Wyzata Country Club, where Ray Perry served on the board of directors. The revolutionary fervor of the late 1960s was seemingly lost on Deephaven teenagers like Elizabeth. 
instead of participating in political protests or experimenting with psychedelic drugs. According to Janet Cardonaway, Elizabeth's classmate from the Minnetonka High School class of 1968, quote, we went to drive-ins, tried Colt 45 or cherry vodka, puked and went home and hoped our parents didn't find out, unquote. Unlike Susan, who was demonstrably more outgoing, Elizabeth was a far more private person, at least during her high school years, attending church every Sunday and maintaining just a few close friendships. During the process of writing my book, I reached out to a number of Minnetonka High School alumni from the class of 1968. At their reunion, they revisited the topic of their classmates' murder, which happened a year after their graduation. On too many occasions to count, Pamela Hall, one of Elizabeth's best friends during their adolescence, generously shared her thoughts with me on the senseless tragedy. Pam and Elizabeth exchanged letters during their freshman year, while Elizabeth was at Monticello and Pam at the University of Minnesota. According to Pam, Elizabeth suffered from homesickness while away at school and lost a considerable amount of weight. But the letters I read were generally upbeat, and in them she talked about going on blind dates and attending formals with boys at neighboring Midwestern schools like Notre Dame. Pam relived for me the moment she and her family learned that one of her closest friends had been murdered. Yes, I was at home and my parents' home on Lake Minnetonka, we were in the family room. Um, and, um, and that's when I heard, as my mother told me, that she, uh, she was missing and, and then they called and said she had been found and that, and we were still, that was only a, like a couple hours difference. I was also curious to hear from someone who knew her so well whether Elizabeth might have been susceptible to the wiles of a grifting, violent hitchhiker. She would not have had the street smarts to say no to somebody getting in the car. Um, she would have been okay with that. She probably thought she knew this person. It's my opinion that she would not have picked up somebody unless she felt she knew that person. That would be the only way she would pick somebody up that was hitchhiking. Pamela also provided insight into the lasting psychological wounds the murders wrought upon Elizabeth's family, permanently scarring them even as they did their best to move on with their lives and put the tragedy behind them. Um, her mother seemed to go on like things were normal, but her dad was never the same, never the same person. Um, I bought a car and he didn't think it was sufficiently um, protective and he wanted me to sell it and get a different car he was still the protector the dad but he was also very very sad this was his this was his darling and he couldn't face I don't think he could face life without her it was hard for him I revisit it once in a while I try not to think back too much but every every time there's a milestone I miss her Another matter that has always fascinated me about these murders is the stark contrast of the violent crimes themselves to the seemingly idyllic communities where they occurred. But for the gruesome slaying of Harry Engelmeyer, a flamboyant businessman who was bludgeoned to death in his car outside the Dunes nightclub in 1964, to this day an unsolved homicide, crimes of such a horrific nature were practically unheard of at the Jersey Shore. After all, Ocean City was founded by three ministers in the 19th century as a religious seaside retreat, a Christian town that to this day maintains blue laws prohibiting the sale or consumption of alcohol. The town has always promoted this virtuous image, 
billing itself as America's greatest family resort, a regional seashore destination for Philadelphia area families. Actress Grace Kelly's family maintained a summer home on 26th Street, and Prince Rainier was a frequent visitor. Gay Talese, author of Thy Neighbor's Wife, grew up in Ocean City, the son of an immigrant tailor who owned a fashionable boutique on Asbury Avenue. Sure, town citizens were accustomed to a certain amount of mischievous spiritedness from the younger crowd, especially given the town's proximity to Summer's Point. But the double homicide of two young women from fine homes, occurring in the woods just outside the town's borders at the beginning of the summer tourist season, was an event for which they were completely unprepared. How could a monster who'd murdered two young women in cold blood go unrecognized while he was here? Did he anonymously immerse himself within the throngs of teenagers loitering outside the Chatterbox restaurant? Or had he been among the mix of frat boys and sorority queens sunning themselves in the 9th Street Beach? Had he spent the night drinking at Bay Avenue in Summers Point a few miles away? Unlike their abstemious neighbors across the bay, Summers Point had always catered to a raucous partying crowd centered around famous bars like Tony Mart's, where the cult movie Eddie and the Cruisers was filmed. The famous rock group known as The Band got its big break while serving as Tony Mart's house band in 1964, back when they were known as Levon and the Hawks. Bob Dylan was said to have called the band during a set break one night, offering them the chance to join Dylan as his opening act on the tour. The setup was great, said Robbie Robertson, the band singer and former lead guitarist. There were three bands on three stages, so there was always music and dancing. Plus, there were a lot of pretty girls in Summer's Point. We would go to the beach sometimes during the day in Ocean City, meet girls, and invite them back to the club at night. By the summer of 1969, however, word had gotten out that Ocean City was a premier destination for youthful revelers nationwide, an oasis for hippies and straight-laced folk alike. In 1969, Time Magazine published an article about the hottest vacation spots for the college crowd. The place with the wildest reputation the article read, is Ocean City. 18-year-old Greg Fawthrop told the magazine, I like it down here. There aren't any parents, no one to tell me what to do. You can blow your mind, drink, do anything you like. By the summer of 69, tens of thousands of students were streaming into Ocean City and Summers Point each weekend. A line of cars would back up onto the Garden State Parkway, snaking through Summers Point and gridlocking the bridges leading onto 9th Street. A Philadelphia Inquirer article, published shortly after the Perry Davis murders, reported that for the first time ever, Ocean City was facing a drug problem among its vacationers. Hippie communes were prevalent, and the Warlocks motorcycle gang rented a house for the summer on Roosevelt Boulevard. With its weekly influx of attractive young women, a generous supply of mind-altering psychedelics, a crowded beach, and a singles bar a five-minute drive across the causeway, Vibrant summer resort towns like Ocean City were fertile hunting grounds for attractive, unbalanced young men in the late 1960s. The ample supply of guest houses and motels offered the perfect cover. Buses, arriving and departing hourly from the 9th Street stop, ferried passengers to Philadelphia, New York City, and all points north, providing a quick means of escape. When you consider the ingratiating nature of young people during the Vietnam era, and the slackly enforced laws prohibiting hitchhiking, it really isn't difficult to envision how an attractive, unhinged, psychopathic charmer, like many of the suspects we will discuss in the upcoming episodes, could sweep into town unnoticed, drink all night, 
be overcome by a psychotic, drug-induced episode and suddenly unhinge after being picked up at the traffic circle by trusting young women like Susan and Elizabeth. One former ranking state official, who was one of the detectives initially signed to the Perry Davis investigation, but chose to remain anonymous, told me, Those three days were so critical. I think every living teenager within a 150-mile radius was in Summers Point that weekend. But after they left, they weren't there. You had to find the witnesses, and you didn't even have an idea where they were. Everybody was gone, even the toll collectors. The odds were stacked against New Jersey State Police detectives. With every hour, every minute they spent on the investigation without locating another witness or narrowing in on a possible suspect, their chances of apprehending the assailant grew worse as he returned to his old life, perhaps conjuring up alibis or creating a plausible excuse. The possibility that the murderer was actually emboldened by what he'd done because he hadn't been caught, that he might strike again in the area and claim two more unsuspecting victims, much in the same manner as he abducted and murdered Susan and Elizabeth, was fast becoming a harrowing possibility for Lieutenant Jim Brennan and the New Jersey State Police. If you're enjoying this topic and want to learn even more about the unsolved murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, you should check out my book, The Garden State Parkway Murders, A Cold Case Mystery, published by Wild Blue Press and available on Amazon in print, audio, and ebook formats. The book is also available for sale at Sunrose Words and Music on Asbury Avenue in Ocean City, New Jersey. You will find links to these sites, as well as a catalog of other true crime podcasts where I've discussed the Parkway Murders at www.christianbarthauthor.com.